Broadcasting from Orchard Park, New York, and Boca Raton, Florida, it's the Midnight Freight Broker Podcast. Whether it's breaking news, tips to increase your business, or just some good old sports talk, this podcast is all about having a conversation about the world of freight. I'm your host, Nate Cross. And Benjamin Kowalski. Let's talk freight. Welcome back, Midnight Freight Broker Nation, for episode 47. Ben, we're here again. Still going. Absolutely. Always looking forward to digging in. Nate, how are you doing this morning? I'm good, man. I'm good. So, hey, listeners, first off, if you are a first-time listener, thanks for joining us. We're here to have a conversation about the world of freight, and we love doing it. Make sure to hit that subscribe button. You'll get the latest content as soon as it drops on Friday, every Friday. Leave us a review. Like to get to start reading some of these off on some future episodes. I've got a bunch in there that I haven't even read off yet, but, uh, and make sure to refer us to all your friends and colleagues in the industry. So, um, Ben, we're back. We're back again. I got a quick sports update here and then I'll let you, let you take your golf side of the house. But, uh, last week I kind of feel like an idiot now. Cause last week I, you know, we were talking about the blue Jays moving down to PNC park there to, to play and, and share a field with, um, you know, with your pirates and, Literally before the show dropped on Friday, the state of Pennsylvania or the Commonwealth, I think it is, uh, blocked it. So now they're actually they're back in Buffalo. So once they're off their road games, they're they're gonna be playing here in my hometown, Buffalo, New York. The Buffalo Blue Jays is what we're calling them. So it was an yeah. almost right. Yeah. <laughs> well, how long but, did you um, say it lasted? It lasted what a day? Maybe by the end of the day that? Yeah, it was it was, it was literally tough. the day that we recorded. So. It like broke news that morning and then it was either that night or the next morning it was announced that Pennsylvania had blocked it and was like, we don't, we don't want you here. <laughs> like we don't want two teams. I mean, baseball's in a freaking mess as a day as Miami had the big COVID outbreak. So they, they, they've got like close to 20. I don't even know what the current one is. They're, these guys are getting tested all the time. You got players, you got staff, coaches, whatever. Um, here's my thoughts though is like, I don't want to get too deep into the sports side here today, but um, you know, you look at basketball, you look at hockey, they've got this bubble mentality where they're trying to consolidate where the games are being played, whereas baseball did not do that. And now you see a hot spot like Florida sees a spike in positive COVID tests for those players. Do you think baseball just shuts down, which I might not mind considering my Red Sox absolutely suck this year. Their pitching is god awful, but or do they maybe consolidate? What do you think happens? Honestly, I, I think that's the same issue that everyone's having is that nobody knows. There's just no information out. I live in South Florida. That's where this is going on with the Marlins. Really close to what's going on in Orlando. Got family, friends up there. I, I don't know, honestly. I, I mean, I'll see stuff on the local news that looks horrible, national, vice versa. But then I also see things that just don't seem to change in the community. And it kind of seems like everything is not as bad as everyone's making it out to be. So right. I, I think it's going to come down. Have you read anything or is it like the players union pushing back? Is it the oh. MLB? Is there like an opposition know. on each side? Are they all kind of in the same direction? And any so, insight into that? I think there's no, there's no black and white answer here. So you've had players that have opted out on their own accord because they have, you know, they might have a family member that has a preexisting condition or a pregnant spouse, anything like that. So there's right. been players that have opted out. At the end of the day, you, you got to think the, the ownership is going to want the games to be played because they want to make money, right? And a lot right. of the players want to play because they want to make money because, hey, 
it's no secret that professional athletes are notoriously the worst at managing their own money. So if they have a year off, it's <laughs> could be detrimental yep. for them. So even a good 60 game season might get, keep these guys afloat. So I don't know. I really don't know. I think, you know, you shut it down for a season. It's going to hurt a lot of people. And at the end of the day, as a fan, we love sports because sports, I mean, you, if you look, look at the history of sports and where the ter- they actually, the word sport comes from, it's like some, got some Greek or Latin um, heritage to it, but it basically means to like have a release from regular life. So it's, it's supposed really? to be like your, your getaway from the crazy day-to-day stuff. So you might want to do a little Google fact checking. I'm on um, it right now. Yeah. Look at like the history of the word sports. Um, and it literally is like, that's the getaway or like kind of the release for people from their regular crazy hustle and bustle of life. So we all want it. It's going to keep us happy and sane from everything that's going on. But I don't know. Would you find anything there? To take pleasure or to amuse oneself circa 1400 from the old French word to divert, amuse, please play to seek amusement. Right. So we're going back. What was that? 1400 years yeah and then it looks like something around uh, even earlier than that yeah activity that offers amusement or relaxation for entertainment the other piece of that too is same topic all of the hollywood production companies are down they they stopped all of the movies and i don't know if anyone else notices we both have little kids only so much a kid that small watch a lot of content at night to try to keep the kids entertained there's yep. nothing new to watch on TV either. In fact, I have almost cut out TV completely because the only thing I watch now, PGA on the weekends, a little bit in between Thursdays and Fridays. I'm listening to audibles when I'm playing with my daughter and just putting cartoons on for her because there's nothing new. There's nothing to watch. There's no new movies, nothing entertaining. The series, even the good ones I watched, Billions, is canceled or is on hiatus until they record again. So yeah, no, it's to weird, get back man. to old school, right? Reading books and spending time <laughs> with our families, getting outside, oh, love and active. Love it. The only other thing in sports, NFL, I got a lot of the players starting to report. I saw at least my Buffalo Bills, Josh Allen, walking in this week with his mask on. It's just it's weird to see the new the new version of sports. So it's very early in the NFL, obviously, mm-hmm. being that it's uh you know people are just starting to report, but. Curious to see if they make changes to their playing schedule or locations, seeing as how everything else is panning out. But I will tell. I mean, I is there is there any, was there any? Did you read anything on how the MLB players actually got infected? Was it like them staying in the same? place? No. So the part of there's like a privacy thing that unless the player elects to tell somebody that they're a positive test. Um, they don't have to, they don't have to release it. Like they'll be put on an injury list. Oh, okay. <laughs> undisclosed reason. Yep. Um, but yeah, there's, there's privacy stuff. So, um, laws and yeah. Makes yeah. Sense. Yep. So yeah, there's, you know, the, the tracing and all that stuff. There's, there's really no public knowledge of it unless somebody decides to come out and say like, yeah, you know, left the, uh, practice facilities and was out partying and, you know, yeah. swapping spit with a couple folks down at the bar there. Who was the guy? Who was the guy in the NBA that 
jokingly touched all the microphones and came back positive the next day oh, yeah. two days later i forget who, who it was that was it like it wasn't lebron was it no it was somebody else um i can picture his face but i can't it, remember who it was. it was one of the big one of the big top players yeah um but yeah because it wasn't that serious then it, well it was but we didn't take it as seriously as we do now exactly we weren't all shut down yet you know yep. all right well that's sports so we'll see what happens. All right, let's get into today's episode. Let's Looking talk forward to it. Yeah, we're great gonna, topic for today. Yeah, we're going to talk about uh, drayage, port operations. We're going to get into a little bit of everything because here's the deal. If you're, if you're a newer freight broker, um, chances are you're not starting off by moving containers or doing drayage. You might not even know what drayage is. I'll be honest. When I worked in the LTL side of the house, I had no idea what drayage was because I had no hmm. reason to because it didn't affect my business. Right. All right. Whereas full truckload, Ben, I know that you've had quite a bit of dealings with port, rail, intermodal, dray, all that stuff. So it's a good good topic to give a little overview on, answer some questions, um, kind of talk about pros, cons, risks to it, considerations, and all that stuff. And here's one of the points, and I, I was on a call with uh, somebody else last week and this came up and I forgot about this, but you know, everyone talks in freight and we talked about this in leads in our, in our previous episode, you know, where you can find it. Pretty much anything you use, buy, eat, consume at some point was on a truck, right? And you really yep. think about it. The point that I think a lot of people don't think about is that I think it's 93% of everything that is on a truck was at one point in a container and on a ship. Shows the import export volumes that we've got it's a lot and i mean if you're having a hard time finding opportunities in full truckload just moving a little back on the supply chain there's a whole other market there that you can be prospecting taking a look at a lot of opportunities there to be able to uncover as well so yeah so let's talk about it let's let's at least identify some of the um you know some of the verbiage here so when you're dealing with any kind of port or import operations you're going to deal with obviously the the freight broker is going to be the one that's going to be contracting your truck right they're going to be hiring a drayage company to haul that from the port or rail yard to a distribution center warehouse some kind of other staging area you'll you're going to be there's you know probably beyond your scope there's going to be a, a freight forwarder nvocc involved in the actual import of that container. So the MVOCC, it's a non-vessel operating common carrier. They typically are the ones who actually own the container. That's like your Maersk companies like that. Yep. Um, freight forwarders do not actually own the containers, um, but they'll do with a lot of the, the customs part of it. So there's, have you, have you, are you well-versed in MVOCCs versus freight forwarders and what the differences are? I know they're very, very similar when it comes to ocean freight. They are. Um... NVOCC stands for non-vessel owning common carrier, which means their license and the license to, uh, to acquire that license is pretty extensive because you then have the authority to create BOLs. And what that means for the country and the security of the country is that you've got the ability to verify what is in and coming in through the ports, right? So yes. there's a lot that has to go through. And I can't remember the organizations that vet you, but it's, it's pretty extensive and you've got to be, your background checks have to be pretty tight to be an NVOCC. But the biggest difference between that and a common carrier is they own the assets and those assets are the vessels. So NYK, you've got Maersk. They Evergreen. don't all own, they don't all have to own vessels though. That's another no. thing too. 
they share space on each other's ships in a lot of cases. Yeah, these and, alliances, yeah. Yep. And then there's been then there's the one alliance that came of it. There was consolidation. Because the one thing about that industry to keep in mind is that huge capital outlays on these boats, right? So you're looking at hundreds of millions of dollars, but it also takes a very long time to build them. And one of the things in the in the international world is supply and demand, just like in freight brokerage, determines the cost all of the time. So if you've ever seen in just shipping news or you're looking around in Peru and you see things like blank sailings, how they manage that is that they're allowed by, and I don't even know who governs them because it's an international trade board, but off the top of my head, like to a certain degree, they're allowed to manage supply, which then manages the price. As long as they're not found manipulating it, there's a certain amount that they're able to actually cancel to keep the supply and demand in line so that the rates don't fluctuate as much as they normally would. That doesn't exist in the truck world. Yeah, that's a, that's a very good point. I mean, you think when, when there was the ability to regulate the, the domestic truckload market, you would almost think back to like the 1980s when they had deregulation. Whereas prior to that, the government was regulating the, the, the actual rates for a shipping lane um, instead of an actual company affecting the supply. So interesting take there. And actually, I didn't know that about the, uh, the, the ocean line side of the house. So um, yeah, very complex. So, you know, that's a high level overview on how the, you know, how the actual container import part goes. So we'll talk about drayage today for the most part. Um, we'll start with containers are offloaded. They're sitting in a massive port stacked up and they need to get out of there to get to their next destination. Okay. So what is drayage? Drayage is simply a, the movement of the good over a short distance, typically out of that port or out of that rail yard to, like I said before, like a distribution center, a cross docking facility, um, basically the next place it has to go before it can then get on up out of there, right? You might see, you might see these companies going just a few miles or 10 miles and they're doing 10 turns in a day. They're moving a bunch of containers you know, they're just back and forth, back and forth, back and forth. And then at this next facility, that's where it might get transloaded onto a, uh, you know, long haul carrier to get taken, you know, further. Absolutely. And, and what I wanted to do is kind of break down just from a general standpoint, because I think a lot of our listeners um, may be new to this. And like you said, want to be looking at it. What, what drayage really is, and it's, I think it's most simplest terms is you've got containers that come into the port from a ship, right? So then they get offloaded off the ship and then they're grounded, right? So the carriers that then go in power only or with their own chassis, they go into the port, they're going to pick that container up and then they are either going to take it to a DC or a warehouse, or it's going to be a door move. They might be taking it directly to the receiver, right? They then unload that cargo and then they bring the empty container back, right? So there's always two moves in drayage and a line haul, you've got point A to point B, and then you can go wherever you want. In drayage, it's always round trip. You also have drayage that supports the rail lines. So when you have a container that gets transported on a rail line, same thing. Carrier goes in, picks up the box, takes it to where it needs to go, then either brings back the empty or will leave it and sometimes bobtail back to get another one. All bobtailing is, simple term for the tractor and the empty chassis or the tractor alone driving back to where it is, right? Which is extremely uncomfortable to ride in if you've ever been in a... Uh in the cab of a, of a uh, semi truck that has no trailer attached to it. 
very bumpy. Never had the pleasure. Um, oh, I have. <laughs> so um, <clears throat> that's a good point. And just to kind of further break down some of the, the terms used there. So um, power only, right? There's no power only is zero trailer. This is ju- that's bobtail, right? That could be you driving there. And when you say chassis, if you, if, if anyone listening doesn't know what a chassis is, it's basically just a frame on wheels that you can put a container on. Now, when we talk about these containers or a box, as you call them, they're typically a 53 foot metal container. Like you would see at think of your stereotypical port, or sometimes you see them on a, uh, on a train. Sometimes they're, they're double stacked on a train. Um, they have different sizes as well. You could have 48 foot, you could have 40 foot, you could have 20 foot. 20 like I know that we, and, yeah, 53s. It depends on the, on the liner. They use a little bit of different sizes, but they're fairly standards. Yep, exactly. Uh, that's one of the nice things about the, the transportation industry is that even though it's not required because you can have some goofy sized equipment, um, people are smart enough to all operate with some of the standardized equipment sizes. So that way it's interchangeable between carriers, chassis, et cetera, Ra- you know, rail cars, all that stuff. So um, it's really not as daunting as it might sound at first when you're hearing all this new stuff with, you know, having to get unloaded and then transferred over and, bring, you know, it's round trip. Um, it's just a different part of the industry. So where does the broker come into play in all this? You're hiring that drayage carrier, right? And they could be, they could literally be a drayage specific carrier. And I think there's a website, isn't it like drayage.org or something like that, where you can actually locate all these drayage companies based on their location. And they're, they're going to be 99% of the time they're located in the, in the vicinity of a port. Correct. Think about your major ports, East coast, West coast on the, on the, you know, the um, golf, they're going to be all down there for the most part. Correct. But and, not and always. You can have a drage move that you can just have a power only carrier or a, a regular carrier come in power only and lease a chassis on site and go do the move. Right. You could do that. Correct. And then, so. and then the other thing to just keep in mind, right, is, is what's really happening. So drage.com is definitely one of them. So some other things that you tend to see in that industry is shorter moves. Um, so, Average drayage haul, you know, is probably, I would guess, 50 miles or less. Um, oh, yeah. So they're, they're 25, 40 miles, 50 miles. Some you'll see at 100, 150. The capacity drops off significantly above that, right? Because when you think about that industry, it's not more on the per mile basis. It's more on the time and how many turns you can move in a day, right? Yes. So a drayage carrier is looking at how many turns can I move? How long is it going to take to unload? How long is it going to take to load? And how, how long before I can turn my next container, right? So it's volume over a longer distance. You're, you know, your larger margins or the, the more profitable truckloads are coast to coast, longer mile, right? The more profitable drage are the exact opposite of that. So it's a very different market and it's, it's a very different way to kind of look at what the benefits are and how you're going to I don't want to say just try to profit, but how you're going to run, you know, a successful brokerage operation that supports drayage, right? Yeah. So actually to, to speak to that, I have seen this done um, two different ways when it comes to invoicing a customer. So um, I've seen, and I'm going to go with a short example here. Let's say it's a 10 mile inland um, single way. So 20 mile round trip, someone can hammer out uh, five of those in a day potentially, or, you know, mm-hmm. four, whatever, depends on unload time, you know, all that stuff. But I've seen it where they get a separate invoice for each turn, or I've seen it where they make it as basically a project or a 
uh, a four trip total all in invoice where it's going to list the, you know, four times on the invoice, the container numbers on there. Uh, how have you seen it where it's per actual container versus one day project? Yes. So I, I've done really, and, and that's the interesting thing about shipping, right? Is because what we tend to do and the way the pricing is usually structured around those contracts is usually the way the shipper is used to doing it and they're typically used to handling it, right? So we've done them where we've run them round trip. Most of the industry is it's going to be round trip. It's point A to B back to A again, right? Um, that's your standard. And then the other piece is you want to look at volume. So what you're going to see is if you've got a customer, this is how their products are getting into the country and into their DCs. So there's usually consistency around it and there's usually volume. So what you want to be looking for is, hey, one or two containers is not ideal. You want to be looking at 10, 20, 30, 40, 50 a week, at the very least a month for it to be worth your time because an average drayage run is probably 200, 250, 350. They're not large dollar amounts. The money's made on the volume, right? So you've got to be thinking about that in the prospecting side too. And like you said, on the billing, when you're talking to the shipper, you want to know how many containers are they coming through, right? Because we're the other side of it from the shipper's point of view is they want to keep costs low. They want efficiency. They want consistent in their consistency in their pricing. There's not a lot of spot in the drayage market. It's more on the contract side or at the very least, on the predictable side, right? Mm -hmm. Because the other piece of this is they know these containers are coming from another country, usually 45 days before they hit this country. So they've got time to plan for it. There's not a lot of last minute containers arriving. You know, and I say that with the caveat is there is definitely opportunities on the other side where containers come in last minute. Um, you have last minute issues getting containers onto the boat outing ship out of shippers where carrier or shippers are willing to pay carriers a premium to have that service that it still exists. It's just, I guess, understanding in the context that if you know your containers coming from that far away, you've got time to work on, get that carrier, get these lined up before it's hit as opposed to full truckload. You're looking at, Hey, these loads are going out Tuesday. We need them picked up the next day. You've got a much longer window to look at. Yeah, actually, to to kind of side note on that, there is so like you said, there's a, there's that long range plan, forty five days, right? You've got good projections on when stuff's going to come in. I actually spoke to a guy this week that he does a lot of stuff in this realm, and what he's done is he kind of cleans up other people's messes. That's kind of his niche. So he's got a lot of good contacts at these ports. So like, for example, guys that are guys and girls that are like the general managers or shift managers of a certain port, if they find that like, Hey, this company's containers have been sitting here for two weeks and whoever's in charge of moving them hasn't done it. They'll call this guy up and be like, dude, can you get someone in here to move these out of here? Cause they're taking out room in my port right now. So that's one way to clean up, but you're, you're to kind of to take advantage of that is clean up someone else's mess. That's how you can build a reputation. Um, Absolutely. So that's kind of an interesting way. And when I heard that, I was like, yeah, that's pretty cool, man. Yep. You know? So I think it's a great yeah. time. Let's talk a little bit about, and I know you want to dig into this, the UIIA, right? And yep. Diana. What is the UIIA? What does that mean? It's so UIIA is the Uniform Intermodal Interchange Agreement. Um, 
they're a very small, actually, they're a small company based out of Maryland. And I've done, yep. I've done some work with them over the last like four or five years. Essentially, here's what they do. And this is, it really only comes into play if you're sending a, um, if you're going to be sending somebody into a portal rail yard that's not already, uh, doesn't already have an agreement set up to get in or out of there with, to pull certain equipment. So going okay. back a second, right, to add, add something to that, right? If you want to pull drayage for a shipper or for a company, you need to be a member of the UIAA. They are the governing, governing body that allows you to really do the interchange with the container, right? They oversee all of the procurement requirements for the major steamship lines. And then basically the UIA kind of enforces those. So when you get into their system, you can see whether or not as a carrier, you are able to pull Maersk boxes. If you're able yep. to pull Evergreen boxes, they have a yep. little bit different procurement requirements. Every one of them has a little bit different on the insurance requirements. The UIA is that governing body that makes sure that all the carriers that are going to be tendered these loads have that approval. So when you talk to a shipper and you want to prospect them to run their drayage loads, a lot of their first questions are, hey, are you guys a member of the UIA? And if it's a yep. no, you can't really get past that. Yeah. They, they kind of make everyone's job easier by connecting everybody. So just like how brokers connect shippers and carriers, the UIA connects the equipment providers. And when I say equipment provider, I'm referring to the, who owns the box. Like you said, Maersk or Evergreen. There's like, I don't know, there's like 80 of them listed on the UIA website. And they connect mm -hmm. that with the actual motor carrier that's going to pick them up. Here, now, here's the caveat. There's got to be, and there's some gray area here, but you're, you're technically supposed to be an asset-based carrier to register with UIIA. And I know that a ton of companies are not asset-based and they're members of it because they're going to be hiring drivers to go in and, in and out of these ports. But the, what'll happen is the UIA will say, well, hey, whatever driver is going into the port needs to, the side of their truck name and MC needs to match whatever company is registered with UIA. And what some people do to get around it as a broker is they'll actually print out like an eight and a half by 11 sheet of paper to give to, or send to their driver and say, slap this on the side of your truck. You're now under MC so-and-so contracted with the broker's name on it because they're a member of UIA. It's, it's really, really goofy. They're going through some changes right now as far as um, updating their site and their regulations to make sure that it's realistic. Because if you, if you excluded brokers from participating in that, literally 90% of the goods in our country would not be on the shelves right now. Like it's just, it wouldn't be realistic. Oh yeah. So that's it's, interesting. it's, it's a weird animal. It is. it is a broker can technically be a member of IANA, which is yes. the governing body over the UIA, but you cannot yep. be a member of the UIA without an asset. Yes. So you literally cannot. So as a broker, you would either need to use or kind of co-broker it with somebody that has assets Yep. to tend to the truck to it. But it's, and I don't want to go too far down this rabbit hole. I mean, we can have another conversation about, but what, what it really is, is, and when I was with a non-asset broker, it, it took me about 14 months to get us onboarded with the major steamship lines. And the reason for that is not, and never being able to be a member of the UIA, they were like, Hey, you're never going to meet our procurement requirements. What I was able to do was to be able to negotiate terms that said, Hey, as long as our system is able to vet the carriers that are actually going to be in possession of the cargo, right? Then we're no different. Just like, you know, the shipper that was giving the, the freight to me, I was enabled to tender it to our carriers. 
and they were able to trust that our vetting system made sure that the carrier that actually picked up the load was a member of the UIA. So there are ways and there are creative ways that you can work within the rules and still be able to provide service. I mean, it depends on how deep and how far down that rabbit hole. Like I said, it was a year and a half project that I worked on that was able to be able to basically meet the guidelines and still be able to help find them capacity. But it's not something that's necessarily that straightforward. I want you to be aware, hey, if you're a brokerage and you guys have assets and you are a member of the UIA, this is something you guys can look at. You can also look at working with another broker that maybe has some access to more capacity. If you guys work together, there's probably a way you can work that out. Absolutely. <clears throat> It's a good discussion. It's a good topic, but it's one of those things like anything new in brokerage. If it's, if it's new to you, I don't recommend you just hop into it with no one to help you out. I recommend to learn from someone that's already doing it. So I've had in the past, I've had agents that would call me and say, Nate, you know, what is this UIA thing? And they needed help on it. So like me personally, I can give them advice and feedback on it, but then I would connect them with another agent that was already running with UIA and have them kind of explain what they've learned, what works, what doesn't work and the best way to do it. So um, don't pass up an opportunity if it's there, but don't just try to do it without somebody giving you a little bit of help or feedback on it. Cause it can get very, very, very messy. Uh, oh, I've had very, people very, that very will call me. Yeah. And I've had people call me and they're like, uh, my driver got to the port and they're apparently they're not turned on on the UIA site under our, uh, under our MC number. And it's like, well, yeah, because each one of these equipment providers, you have to go in there. And like you said, they have different insurance requirements. They have all these addendums you got to fill out and sign. And sometimes, and sometimes they want like a, le- uh, a letter of credit from the company mm-hmm. saying that they're going to get paid. Like there are some absurd requirements, but um, you got to make sure that all that stuff is set. There's all kinds of training you can do on UIA right on their website. If you get involved in it, um, but yeah, it's a, it can get, become a mess really fast. And, and to get on that same, and this is, I think, a good time to pivot into the other topic, which is one of the other, I don't want to say it's convoluted, but it's something you would need to understand before you get into that is how the actual chassis work, right? Um, you know, if you booked a carrier on it and they own a chassis, you're going to pay a daily rate for that chassis, right? You yep. need to make sure you incorporated that into the quote that you've given back to your shipper to pick it up, right? That's a daily rate. That's going to be charged per day, no matter what. And in some instances, you're going to pull containers. It may sit on that chassis for a couple of days. It could sit on that chassis for a couple of weeks. That daily rate is occurring for that carrier. There are other shippers. And by shippers, I mean some of the VOCCs, right? Like the major shippers, they require some of their boxes to be pulled on either like the West Coast uses the pool of pools, right? Or on the East Coast, maybe you're using DCLI, like certain carriers like Maersk is going to require you to use their chassis provider because they negotiated that rate as a company based on volume, right? So yeah, as maybe a carrier, you might be paying DCLI's rate of 25 or 30 bucks a day or whatever it is. I promise you the company that has millions of these coming in every year isn't paying close to that, right? So what they want you to do is they need you to be able to go and to use their contract for the chassis to pull the box that they own to deliver the cargo that belongs to the BCO, which is the beneficial cargo owner, then you've got to take the box back to the people that own the box and discharge the chassis back into the same place to avoid that daily rate. So there's a lot going on and just sometimes a simple move. That's why you typically see more asset carriers doing the drainage side as opposed to non-asset brokerages because understanding how those, those things work is really important in making sure your bills are set up right, that you get paid right and that you're compliant. 
I, I've, I remember seeing some colleagues one time pulled some containers out, weren't able to deliver them, didn't realize that there's also a bill on the actual box. There's a charge for that, right? The companies that own the box need these returns so that they can get them to the next company. And you can't just have these sitting out indefinitely. Somebody took a load, they delivered the cargo to the shipper, but they didn't return the container. So carrier, right? Just forgot that the empty container was in their yard and it sat there for about a month, right? Well, the broker never called and made a check call to the carrier to say, hey, did you return that box? Why? Because they're used to run full truckload. That's not something you would ask, right? Yeah. Find out four weeks later that the empty container wasn't returned, right? That was a bill. And it depends on the carrier. I think it's typically seven days you have to return it. But for 23 days, it was racking up a daily charge. And then at the end of the day, it's going, well, I don't know how I'm going to pay this. Well, guess where that's coming out of? It's coming out of the margins that you made in the rest of the week or the rest of that month. It's coming from somewhere. Yeah. I promise you there's nowhere to pass that cost on to. Your shipper isn't going to pay for that. So funny uh, side story here on container costs. So, and this is uh, this is a little military spin here. So when the first Gulf War happened in the early 90s and literally there was a, a, a 96 hour conflict, right? That had six months of logistics that went into plan planning and then cleaning it all up. And a lot of it was the container. So mm -hmm. the uh, you know, Department of Defense had shipped all this stuff, all these goods and supplies over to the Middle East. And it was so poorly managed as far as in-transit visibility and where the containers were located and the actual uh, container numbers on the side of the container that when they went to clean it all up, and again, they didn't own the containers. They're owned by the, the um, NVOCCs or whoever, the equipment providers, right? Yep. So daily charges were racking up at, millions of dollars per day for six months of these containers that just sat there. I'm talking like many, many millions, not just it's like a 1 million number. a day. It's like $10 million a day. So they spent, the Department of Defense spent more money in um, container storage or um, usage charges for mm -hmm. empty containers just sitting there. They could have bought them. They could have bought their own and just used their own. But yep. that's what it comes down to is, because it's not just the cost of, you know, using it. It's, when I think about this, when that equipment provider does not have that container available, there's an opportunity cost of lost business there. And especially if it's on that large of a level, when you've got a bajillion containers sitting over in the Middle East. You so, know what's interesting? To that yeah. same point, and I love that story, Nate. I, I, I did a lot of work with um, the largest one. And I remember being up at their corporate headquarters and taking me around and I was, you know, getting, getting a chance and the opportunity to learn about really their business from their point of view, right? Seeing the birth schedules, the sailings and everything. And the one thing that I learned that was more surprising than anything is that was one of their largest expenses as a company is not only shipping air because empty containers are shipped around constantly, right? But getting them returned is like one of the largest expenses because what happens is in some of these even larger companies, I've done a lot with that, you know, with the DLA, right? And the SDDC with troop moves, moving containers around the country, where else that expense is also very large is companies that have limited storage and, and warehousing space, when they've got more inventory coming in or they need more room, what they typically do is they, they create a container pool in their parking lot where additional inventory sits in those containers until they're ready to use it, right? Yep. And, and their point of view, hey, it makes more sense in some, in some instances to pay that storage charge 
than to build out a warehouse maybe for one month out of the year. Yeah. But that's a big cost because the opportunity cost for the carrier is, hey, these aren't moving. These don't have goods in it. Like yep. we need these back in circulation. They're not making anybody any revenue sitting there. Yeah, that's a good point. Because I think whether, whether it's uh, being stored or it's being used to move goods, it's, it's in use and not available to be used by somebody else. So you can't have storage charges be cheap. That's why these people are paying out the wazoo when they're sitting there for 20, 30 days. So yep, crazy, man. Woo. Good talks on containers and ports and all kinds of stuff. I dig it. We should do an episode on just straight up intermodal with like rail or door to door and piggybacking. That'd be a fun one. I think that's a great idea. In fact, I've got some phone calls out to some people at some other companies. I think that would be great guests that maybe we can have on. Um, one that does solely dredge, some other intermodal stuff. Because I, I think understanding how really the logistics network works within our country and how whatever piece you're operating in, understanding what's prior and after, right, is just another way to find some other opportunities, right? The same way we talked about, you know, for the brokers, for the carriers out there, you guys are looking for more business. Everyone talks about how do I find more shippers? How do I find more shippers, right? Well, the, the next question is, are you, are you looking at the same type of shippers? Are you looking at not only just different regions in the country to find these same shippers, but are you looking at different modes of transportation, right? Are you digging into LTL in some ways, right? Are you looking at drayage to get some of these products that you probably later picked up anyway? If yeah. you're shipping full truckload out of a DC, have you asked that other question to that same person? Like, hey, where does this product come from? Oh, we got 45 containers coming every month. Oh, who's handling those? Oh, well, just the same company. Well, how's the service been? Well, pretty poor. Oh, okay. Why? Is that something you guys do? It, it could literally be one question away from an opportunity that can help you service your customer a little bit better and expand your business a little bit more, right? Yeah, I'm, I'm with you 100% of the way there. I always like the little, the little sales and prospecting tips here, little, little free gold nuggets. So good discussion. Um, any final thoughts on drayage port operations? It's cool to me. I think it's a, it's a fascinating part of the industry. For me, so I, I enjoyed working on that side of the business. I think every bit as much, if not more, why I enjoyed it the most and I think was the fact that there was honestly less competition. Um, yeah. Less people knew about it. There's a barrier to entry knowing that fewer people are digging into this. And if there's less competition, I mean, that's just more opportunity for you to get through to be able to build that relationship with some of these companies and to add some value where some other people may not be. Yeah, and I will, I will piggyback on that by saying this, that th these kind of moves are very much so meant for and appropriate for a freight broker that is extremely organized and can handle a lot of moving parts. Because if you were to pull up your TMS and look at your active, uh, your, your board of active loads, you're going to see like five to 10 X the volume if you're dealing with drage, because you've got all these shorter moves and there's a higher volume of them, assuming that you're staying as active as you were if you were just doing traditional full truckload. But it requires a lot of attention to detail, a lot of communication, a lot of intransitive visibility, and just a lot of organization. And, and to that note, right, another asterisk or caveat, make sure your TMS either is built to handle drage or you've got a system or you're prepared to implement a system that is going to be able to handle that, right? A lot of the TMS systems are set up to run point A to point B, right? If you've got to run round trip 
and you've got to track the chassis number and you've got to track the container number and you have to track my mind just went blank um no you're number. pretty much there you could do track yeah, you've number, got trailer number chassis well, number, yeah you've got three numbers for every number. every container move right so you've got you have your booking number you've got your container number then you got your chassis number you've got to return the chassis you've got to return the container and there's usually multiple containers within that booking yeah so where a normal full truckload you've got a po you've got three numbers to track and two moves just making sure that you've got a system because you need to be able to follow up to make sure these things happen. I mean, that's the job of the broker, right? These things get returned. The load was completed. Everything was returned. Not just the cargo was delivered and your customer's happy. That's good. Let's, uh, let's get into some questions we got here today. All right. This first question, and speaking of uh, TMSs, this is actually a software question. Tevin asks, what is a good CRM for brokers to use. Now I've seen CRMs that are standalone. I've seen them built into TMS platforms. Obviously a CRM, uh, customer relationships management manager. What is it? Is yeah, that right? Customer relationship management system, CRM yeah. system. Yeah. So um, I have seen, like I said, proprietary ones built in the TMSs. I personally use HubSpot and I love HubSpot as a CRM. You can get a free version. You can get a, a cheaper paid version. You can get an expensive paid version. But what I like about it, and there's other ones too, there's like Salesforce and you know a whole bunch of CRMs. What I love about something like HubSpot is that it will log your emails right from Outlook. If you have, a, if you have the plugin logged in or uh, signed in on your Outlook, it will send reminders to you. You can record phone calls and dial through it. Um, it can send out um, automated sequence emails. Uh, what, do you, what are you using, Ben, for your CRM or what have you used and what do you like and don't like about it? I've used inside, inside in-house developed ones. Um, mm -hmm. I think we use Infusionsoft now. I've heard great things about HubSpot. Um, and honestly, the way I think about it is a lot of them have different attributes. At the end of the day, if it tracks your customers, it can let you know when to follow up. It lets you know when you've talked to them. As long as you can log all your phone calls and you can log all of your emails and you can track all the pertinent information, that's what I'm looking for out of a CRM. Um, some of the additional things I think features, I mean, I've never really used Salesforce. I've heard a lot of great things. I know there's a lot of things that can be done with it. The thing is bells and whistles are great, if you're going to use them and you've got a plan to actually use it, right? If all you're doing is logging your customers' names in, then all you pretty much need is a place to keep them all there and to be able to organize it, go back and to have yeah. it remind you to call these people when it should, right? I've had people that I'm like, oh, what are you using for a CRM? I'm like, oh, Excel. Or yeah. <laughs> some people are like, ah, oh, Post-it Notes. <laughs> yeah, I, I, wouldn't, I, I wouldn't use Excel. I wouldn't use Post-it Notes. It's fine to put a dial list together or maybe to just get in front of you to make some phone calls for a day, but you need something that is going to be able to consistently keep track and organize your pipeline, right? You should yep. be putting hundreds of people into this per day, per week, per month, wherever your industry is, but it should be enough that you absolutely can't track it in your memory. Yep, for sure. Good. All right, next question from Pablo. This is good. This is a scenario question and, and he's asking, what, what should I do? Here's the situation. Pablo is a broker. So as a freight broker, he hires a carrier and it's a, I think it was a Texas to Georgia move. So you figure a couple of days transit and about halfway through the carrier breaks down. And when asked if they can get a backup truck to come 
take the trailer and finish the move. They said, no, we can't do that. So as a broker, and this made me shake my head and almost have it explode, but he says, well, um, you know, we decided, we agreed to hire a second carrier to come take his trailer, but we're disputing the amount that I should pay him. I don't think I should pay him anything because he broke down and he thinks that he should get about half pay because he made it about halfway. It's like, what do you think I should do? And everyone's going back and forth about pay the carrier or don't pay the carrier. And I'm like, why would you ever let another carrier take your other, a different carrier's trailer? Yeah, the, it was so funny. When you brought this up to me, both our eyes lit up when, and it was like, everyone's talking about the pay rate. And I'm like, we can get in that in a second. I'm like, but whose idea was it for the second carrier to take the first carrier's trailer on down the road? And I'm like, and second of all, what's the plan? Like, is this guy supposed to go find his trailer <laughs> later? Like, well, like, is he loaded? I like the whole container thing. Does he have insurance? Like what? And who, and, and, and I think, I think the funnier part, not that, I mean, we got a kind of a good chuckle out of it, but taking a step back, I mean, a good example of, you know, asking the right questions. Right. And you brought this up, right? Did the first carrier have trailer insurance? Like, is there trailer interchange insurance at all? Like, is this covered in any way? I mean, I'm going to kick this back to you. How do you think we should handle this, Nate? Standards. Truck here, breaks down halfway from point thing. A to point B. Well, I think first option is offer the carrier to send an, another tractor out there to, to, to do a swap, right? Yep. Drop the load, have the other truck take it, and you go get fixed. Option uh, one. Well, that's right? one option. Yep. Another option is get your truck fixed, and you might have a day of service delay, option whatever. Two. Uh, option three is take it to a cross dock and have another carrier come with their own trailer and have it cross docked over. Those are three options, all of which make sense. Exactly. And out of that third option, right? Want to make sure you also have cross dock insurance, right? You want to make sure you're insured to be able to do that interchange, to be able to make sure that product is covered because it's like, what's that? Auckland's razor or whatever. If it can go wrong, it will. There have definitely been instances where some forklifts has been trying to take a product out of one trailer. <laughs> what did you just call that? I think it's called Occam's Razor. If if it can go wrong, it will. I think we need somebody. We need like an editor called. to be able to fact check my BS. And it's uh, it's something's law. What oh. can go wrong will go wrong. <laughs> I'm gonna wait. What is that law? Uh... By the way, I forget. Uh, what's the guy? It's a guy's name and then law. Let's see. What Occam's razor is a scientific philosophy, by the way. I wasn't that far off. Murphy's law. Murphy's law. How did I forget that? Yeah. I don't know. Things that, let's see. Uh, whatever can go wrong will go wrong. Murphy's law. Ogman's razor. I've never heard Occam's of that. Occam's razor is the law is the law is that that the problem solving principle that entities should not be multiplied without necessity. You just don't make more of them without a need for it. That was Occam's razor. Don't know why that was stuck in my head, but it's a it's a logistician type of thought there. Yeah. So that's good, man. That's uh good questions. Any any final thoughts on uh that situation with cross docking and no, it's important though. I, I mean, I, I was telling you a little bit about that story where it happened to me. I remember I was delivering a load of, it was Motorola radios to the Canadian military on Prince Edward oh, Island. Yeah, this is good. 
It was a holiday weekend. I think it was Martin Luther King weekend because I knew it was in January and it was a snowstorm. So the truck, they, it had to go. So, you know, it was a, it was an immediate load, paid a lot more than normally would have holiday weekend going into a snowstorm. The truck made it to the island, but then a road that, that it was the only road you could take to get to this base there closed. So we're in an issue where it was like a Saturday or Sunday on a holiday weekend. And he's like, I can't go any further. Right. And I had talked to then the shipper and some of the people, the Canadian government said, no, there's another road. They can get here. We, we still need this load. Like it has to make it here. I can't remember the context of why they needed this, but it came down to where the first carrier said, well, we're going to turn around and drive back to our yard. And it was about, cause where this Island was, I think it was about an 11. It was, it was pretty significant. I want to say, five, 600 miles back to their yard. I was trying to get another carrier to come and meet them and to be able to find a cross dock to get the load there. They ended up just turning around and driving back to their yard. But once they got the load back to their yard, they refused to release it to me until I paid them for not only driving all the way there, but the round trip mileage back to their yard, right? And when you and I were chatting about this, it brought up a good question, right? What do you do if a load's held hostage? As a smaller broker or just any uh, broker, load's yes. held hostage, you owe me this money, there's a dispute, there's a moral dispute. It's, hey, my load's pretty much back to point A. Understand there was a circumstance. We were trying to work out something that was mutually beneficial with the, you know, the dispatcher. The driver got fed up and drove back and then they want you to pay for it, right? So differing points of view, how do you get to that resolution? Yep. So uh, I will first come, I'll start off with saying what not to do. And this is often the first response that a lot of brokers have is they're going to call law enforcement and report the load as being held hostage and give it a try. But you're going to learn after like once or twice that they're not going to take it very seriously. And they're going to say, you know, they're going to ask you all the questions that I will bring up right now. Like have, do you have load tracking on? Um, did the load tracking, was it manually disabled by the carrier? Um, did you try to contact the carrier's dispatcher? Um, have you talked to the shipper or the receiver about their, their last contact with them or the timestamps? And I always find that if, if a driver is dodging your calls, if you call their insurance agent about something and the insurance agent calls them, they're probably going to answer fairly, fairly quickly. So that's always been my little secret nugget is to call the carrier's insurance agent and you can find that's publicly listed, I think on FMCSA. Um, you can, and you should be able to see it from your TMS if you hired them. I think that's awesome. I didn't know about that at the time. I, and to be honest, I can't even remember how I ended up resolving. I think I ended up paying half of it. We claimed them, did something because they had money on our books and I resolved it somehow internally with receivables and leveraged something. But that's a great tip because everybody has access to that, right? No yep. matter your size, you know their insurance carrier, you know who that is, or you should, um, before they picked up the load, that, that should be your first call, right? Law enforcement is going to go down the road of, and this is probably not their first phone call, right? Like, no, not at all. They're not running out there to go get into an argument with a truck driver who's probably having a dispute with whoever that is, right? Yeah. And it's usually about their pay. Exactly. Or something. So, yeah. And, and I mean, they know the difference between, you know, a stolen load and 
a load exactly. held hostage. So that's what they're trying to get to. But I think that's a great point. Super helpful out there. If anybody runs into that, that should be your first phone call. But great yeah, if discussion. you guys have any other tips, let us know. Yeah, send them out Hop here. Hop on I mean, midnightfreightbroker.com, the new website. Absolutely. Pretty excited about that. We got that all up and running in the past couple of weeks. So if you haven't been there, please check us out, midnightfreightbroker.com. Um, we'll likely be having a newsletter at some point. So if you want to you know, get your information in there, we'll take, a, we'll take a look at it. Any questions, you can reach either Nate or I through there as well. You know, LinkedIn, Facebook, and everything else. That's right. Good episode. And until next time, go Bills. Go Bills. <laughs> Sweet. That wraps up this episode of the Midnight Freight Broker Podcast. Thanks for joining us. Make sure to leave a review and check out all the other episodes for even more great content. Check out the show notes for links to any content that you've heard in this episode. Visit us on the web at www.midnightfreightbroker.com. And feel free to contact me if you'd like to learn more about a new home for your agency. And if you'd like to learn more about what I do or are interested in us running a complimentary sales training for your sales team, please reach out through LinkedIn or our website once again at midnightfreightbroker.com. See you all in the next episode.